fresh out the oven. It's Cinema Bums feeling a little loose. I'm Emmett. And I'm Wade. We are Cinema Bums. It's a podcast. You know that. We watch through every single movie and popular film franchises, one each week, to try and track how the storytelling changes over time. Today, we're returning to our miniseries, Can't Stop the Peeling, covering every film series by Jordan Peele to discuss the newly released Candyman. We will fully spoil today's film and also the 1992 Candyman mm-hmm, as mm-hmm. well. Wade, how are you doing? I'm doing good. This is our first time ever. Is this our first time ever talking about our new movie? I think so. This is our first time we've ever been relevant. <laughs> Thank you, Jordan Peele. <laughs> this is definitely our first time we've returned to a series. Yeah. I don't think we've built up to a new one coming out in any of the other ones yet. How are you doing, Evan? I'm doing great. Uh, I'm having a wild and weird weekend and uh, loved watching this movie as part of that. And mm. yeah, I watched it. I finished watching it maybe an hour ago. So it is fresh. It is You're fresh. You're coming in hot. Yeah, I'm coming in hot off of this one, dude. Two nights ago, I watched the original. And then last night, I watched the new one. Okay. So I watched them back-to-back evenings. And also, I would say Laura and I talked for about like an hour after each one of these. Because yeah. there's like a lot to unpack with both of them. Yeah. I think that they're both like good and weird and messy movies in completely different ways. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We want to care to care to unpack that, care to disembowel that concept a little <laughs> further. I just think, and I'm sure we'll try to get through all of this, but they both have like very complicated mythologies mm-hmm. that they set up. And the two mythologies are like entirely different from each other for the most part. Yeah. In in, ter- in the two different movies. So there is like a lot there in both of them. That's true. Ooh. I, I, I don't know. I think, and I think, but that difference is I think kind of maybe what the second movie is about. Mm-hmm. Like it's not just a random, oh, we decided to change the backstory because. There was a moment in the second one where I was like, is this a movie about storytelling? Right. Like, is yes. that what it's supposed yeah. to be? Yeah. And the, well, because mm-hmm. the original has that journalism angle to it or like kind of grad student investigative yeah. thing going on. And this has the artist, mm-hmm. the artist eye in. I feel like the storytelling metaphor might be clearer in the first one. Yeah. Although I think like the ex- like the experiential side might make more sense in this in this one. Like how the cycle reiterates might make more sense in this one. I think in general things are slightly more successful in the first one, mm-hmm. but I think they're very similar. Yeah. And they both have like kind of incoherent last 20 minutes. <laughs> but which are both exciting in both of them dude the the end (laughs) the end of the original Candyman is straight up just like they were like okay we just want to have a metal ending they're like we don't care like we've just gotten into it like you have the whole like exorcism in the fire and she like saves the baby and she gets to die peacefully and you're like and then it just has Mm -hmm. like the slasher twist ending of like her coming back which is like cool and it Mm -hmm. is metal and like I think it makes it a better movie, but it makes it as a story and as a metaphor less coherent. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> and uh, like an earlier twist about her involvement in it, I would say also makes the first one less coherent. How about we talk through the first one okay, a little wait. bit? Straight up, straight uh-huh. up. I just I'm just going to turn this into a podcast about both of these movies. 
<laughs> okay, okay. Because I loved the first one so much, and I love mm-hmm. like I love both of them, and I think like the way they're working is good. So like first one, yeah. flop or bop? I would go bop for the first one. Yeah, I would also go bop. You? Yeah, bop. Okay. Okay. Cool. Let's try and explicate it. Wade, you're on the spot for this one. <laughs> Let me um, drop some facts on you about this first one. Okay. Because I'm sure some of our listeners will be like me three days ago and have never seen either of these movies. Although I remember being told this as a kid. I don't know if you ever heard about this movie, but I have a distinct memory. I was in Virginia, so I think it would have been second grade of like two kids walking out of the bathroom and telling me like, if you turn the lights off and look in the mirror and say Candyman five times, he'll appear in the mirror. And that was just like a thing in my head for a long time. So I heard this, a similar urban legend, but it was Bloody Mary is like the one that I heard. But it's like the same urban legend of like a person who appears and kills you if you say their name in the mirror. And I was always just like, well, obviously that's not real, but why the hell would you test it? Like, you know, you know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. it's not worth it's not worth uh, running that experiment, you know, as one of the characters fortuitously says in this film. Nope. Uh, (laughs) Which is a perfect time to say 47 weeks until Jordan Peele's. Nope. (laughs) Do you think I I do do think cut to a trailer for nope? Yeah, right in the middle of the movie. <laughs> but you know when they screen it on Disney Plus, that's that's exactly where the trailer is going to go. Yeah, it's going to be five minutes long when they screen it on Disney Plus. I had also, as a kid, heard about the razor blades and the candy thing. Yes, yeah, yeah. This was definitely a thing where, like, my parents every Halloween had to like open all of them or like feel all of them before I could eat them. This is apparently not. Apparently, that's just like an urban legend. Like, there have never been any recorded instances of that happening ever. Yeah, it's complete BS. When I was a kid, I definitely thought it was a scheme by my parents that they had to, like, check them for poison. Like, yeah. eat which one they want. Yeah, I, I think that's really what it was. I think you're <laughs> uncovering the, a great truth here. But that is something that I feel like everyone, at least in our generation, like, knows about and yes. dealt with. And that was something that I guess just like all over the world, people were like, yeah, my friend's friend found razor blades in their candy. So now we all got to look for them. And not just that, but this is there's like other tropes going on there as well as like like the hook handed guy who kills people on Lover's Lane is like an even older. That's like a 1950s Mm. like style story of like, oh, like these people were making out in the car and they got killed by the hook handed man. Mm. And so there's like that kind of older urban mythology as well yeah and it's by clive barker he's kind of like a fantasy horror writer that i was really into in like high school and so i've never read i've never read this story but like i was aware that he was involved with it and it looked creepy and i was like oh he's into some weird stuff so like maybe i don't want to check it out Mm -hmm. you know yeah well that's a good segue here into talking about the first one clive barker uh had this series called books of blood Mm-hmm. which were like collections of short stories. I think those were his breakout. And then he did a lot of other stuff. I think it's in volume five. There's a short story called The Forbidden, which is about a grad student in Britain, in London, who is doing like a thesis on urban legends and hears about the Candyman. It's very similar to the plot of the first film, but it is uh, set in London and it's like a metaphor for the class system. 
in mm-hmm. London, rather than being specifically about race. Mm-hmm. Clive Barker, also famous for, for writing the novels and writing and directing the first movie of Hellraiser. Oh, yeah. I think you watched. I, I did watch that. Okay, so it gave me major Hellraiser vibes when I was watching it, and that makes sense. I think Hellraiser is less coherent, and that's probably because he wrote and directed it. Mm. And it was like more of his just like Hellraiser is like a nightmare vision, but I have no idea what the plot of it is or what the hell anybody's doing in it. Mm-hmm. Like that one is basically about this dream cycle. Yeah, there is a dreamy element to this first one in particular. And I think like it, even that even comes through like the way it's shot feels like the colors are very vibrant and mm-hmm. like almost too bright. So he writes the story. Then the British director Bernard Rose mm-hmm from london he's a white guy which is important to note because like everything in this movie he makes is very distinct to race Mm -hmm. he he sets out to adapt this story the forbidden and he is the one who changes it from being set in london and about the class system to being set in chicago Mm -hmm. set in the actual uh historic cabrini green housing project in chicago Mm -hmm. he writes and directs this first movie which was released October 16th, 1992. Really notably, it has music by Philip Glass. Yes. Which I think contributes to that dream-like thing we're talking about in this first one. Yeah, it's, it's like mostly piano music. It's very beautiful. I read that uh, Philip had conflicting feelings about it because he said that when he signed on, he thought it was going to be more of like a London thriller, basically. Uh And then he was a little let down that he was doing the music for what he thought was a slasher. But then I read later in life, he was like, actually, that's the movie that I get the most residual checks from of anything I've ever made. Yeah. (laughs) So I like that. (laughs) That's awesome. Even the most down-ass artsy <laughs> dudes, every once in a while, you're Philip Glass, you gotta take a paycheck, you do mm-hmm. a Candyman movie. Mm-hmm. So this first one is starring Virginia Madsden as Helen Lyle, who is the protagonist. Who is incredible in this movie. Yeah, yeah, she's great. You've got Tony Todd playing the Candyman. Should we walk through the bones of this plot, Emmett? So she's a grad student at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Her husband is a professor there. Yes. And there's some tension. (laughs) Yes. It seems from the beginning that he is sleeping with a student, which is eventually confirmed. A student played by, as I found out, a porn star at the time. That's incredible. What what a Yeah. Yeah. And it's her and... So she's doing seemingly a joint thesis yes, with her it. friend Bernadette, yes. who is a black woman played by Cassie Lemons, and they are doing this thesis on urban folklore in Chicago. And so she finds out this creepy stuff about this attack that just happened at uh, Cabrini Green, and mm-hmm. she goes to investigate it. She starts As she starts to unwind this, she hears the story of the Candyman, who, as we said, if you say his name five times, he appears behind you and kills you if you say it in a mirror. But eventually she invokes Candyman by saying his name in the mirror. And she starts to get like creeped out, chased around by this big dude with a hook for a hand. She gets clubbed in the head by a guy with a meat hook at one point while she's investigating it. But he's just like a real person, nothing supernatural. But he just like didn't like her snooping around like Cabrini Green. 
she's still being chased even after that guy's been locked up and she's like hearing voices, but she's not sure if it's because, hey, she just suffered a massive head trauma. Like when that guy hit her with the meat mm-hmm. cleaver at a certain point, And this part, like I love this, yeah. this part. She's yeah. in the parking garage. She sees the guy. He comes up to her. She passes out. She wakes up. It's a completely different scene. There's blood everywhere. She has a knife. She has no idea how she got there or has it. Mm -hmm. There's a dog with a severed head. There's a woman running around also covered in blood and screaming. It's a woman that she had like previously met and she's in this woman's apartment in Cabrini Green as she eventually Mm -hmm. finds out. The woman attacks her and she like stabs her uh, or like cuts her shoulder or something. And the cops show up and take her into custody because they think that she killed the dog, right? Yes. So let me run it back a little bit on this one. Uh This whole film is set in Chicago, which is part of the reason I loved it. I think it's a pretty good Chicago movie. Hmm. I used to live in Chicago. It's my favorite city in the world. But it is like notoriously one of the most segregated cities in the world. And that is like part of this movie is like the racial tension between the academia world, which is like what this movie is about, and members of the poorer community in the area. Mm-hmm. So she starts by she's like looking up urban folklore. She hears about this recent murder, which is important to her. This was a little confusing to me, but like relevant to her because her fancy apartment was like the same building structure as the Cabrini Green project. Yes, housing. it had also been a project. So knew that she could get into the apartment the woman had been killed in if she could mm-hmm. get into the apartment next to it or something yes because her the structure of her bathroom is that yeah. her like mirror comes out of the wall and you can see straight into the apartment next to it and since they're like the same layout she knows she can do this at cabrini green so she goes like on the scene at cabrini green her and bernadette both go and she goes into the apartment where this woman was murdered. She knows about this, by the way, because some like janitors, two black janitors at the college tell mm. her about it. Yeah, right. Okay, so when she goes into it, she goes into the apartment where the kill was, and it has been like sort of defaced and covered in graffiti. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's this like recurring phrase, sweets to the sweets. She finds a bunch of candy that has... One of them has a razor blade in it. That's the only reference to that. You never hear why that's there. You never hear why he's called Candyman. That she just finds that in that one scene. And so then when she gets out of there, she is greeted by the next door neighbor. Anna Marie McCoy is the name of the next door neighbor. She's raising a little baby boy. And she talks to them. She goes on record and talks to them a little bit about what happened. And then shortly thereafter... Helen and her husband are having dinner with like the dean or some other professor. Mm-hmm. The dude, one of the dudes, explains that he had written his thesis on Candyman. Oh, okay, right, right. Because there's that whole element too, where she's feeling like she's being shut out too. Yeah, there's also this other academic, like very gendered academic world thing too, which is that like this other guy already wrote about Candyman but he wouldn't go to Cabrini Green. And that's like what her and Bernadette are willing to do that no one else would mm-hmm. like actually go to the projects. 
But he explains the story of Candyman. Oh, the origin story, which is that he had been the original guy was this son of a freed slave in the 1880s Mm -hmm. who was lynched at Capriti Green for getting a white woman pregnant, had him stung to death by bees is the eventual they sawed off his arm and had him stung to death by bees. Is yeah. How they killed him. So there's this whole bee motif, which is also just like never explained other than that it's creepy. It's like rule of cool. It is just there, baby. <laughs> yeah. So maybe you can tell from how we're talking about this. It's a little scrambled, but like this movie has so many ideas. It has, it has so much going on and it is so, and like, it works better than we're making it sound like it works. I yeah, feel like. absolutely. Absolutely. It is like one of the most original movies I have ever seen. Totally edge of my seat the entire time. I was like, what the hell could happen next? It isn't a plot that really subscribes to genre conventions or plots you've seen in other movies. It feels more like a short story in that way that it's like paced weird and takes so many turns and has so many things it's playing with. But yes, one of them is that the backstory is the Candyman, as Emmett said, was like this well-respected painter mm-hmm. who was the son of a slave and was hired by like a wealthy white family to paint their daughter, fell in love with their daughter, got her pregnant, and for that was killed, was given a hook hand and then killed by bees. And that is important because there is kind of like a graffiti element too, which relates back to the painting. Oh, Yeah. Every symbol in this movie like ties back to some other symbol in this movie, but they never all like quite add up. At a certain point, the thrust of this movie becomes that Helen has summoned the Candyman, mm-hmm. who appears to her in physical form, but no one else can see him mm-hmm. when he appears. The Candyman has then kidnapped Anthony McCoy, the baby of Anna Marie McCoy, the nice lady at Cabrini Green who is working with them. The Candyman is holding the baby hostage and he's saying to Helen, be my victim and I'll let the baby go. And he is frequently appearing to her in scenes where if she refuses to be his victim, he then kills everyone around her and like leaves her with a murder weapon to sort of frame her for having killed those people. And it is like that works Like, it is a truly horrifying, like, Kafka-esque nightmare. Like, especially the first time it happens, even when it's just the dog, but you think, like, maybe she's killed the baby, too, and you don't know, and they're like, we haven't looked in the crib yet, we don't know what's going on, it's, like, Mm -hmm. so horrifying. That is effective. I really thought that that was a dream sequence for, like, the first three minutes. I was like, this is so weird, and out of nowhere, it can't be real. And then it was, and I was like, wow, that's just what we're doing now. (laughs) Yeah. And that continues to happen. And that is a great fear in the first one, which is entirely absent from the second one. But this like very unique fear of being like framed by the Candyman, basically, that these horrible things are happening and you're the only one who knows about them. And then you are left looking responsible for them. Mm -hmm. Okay. The other thing going on that we've got to talk about Uh is that the Candyman is really hot. Oh, yeah. And he's kind of like framed as like a romantic hero. There is like this seduction element between him and Helen. Like kind of like a sexual vampire sort of thing. Yeah. 
he speaks sort of in almost like Victorian era sonnets. Yeah, yeah. And like ha- and like when he talks, it's not just like the actor speaking. There's like all of this weird like voice effect stuff going on. So it sounds like he's all around and it's like very, yes. it's creepy but sensual. And he also has an incredible voice. Tony Todd, who's playing him, has yeah. like the most amazing voice. So eventually, it is basically that everyone close to her gets killed by the Candyman. People keep like in close proximity, keep getting killed except for her husband. Because the world also thinks that she has done it since she has been framed. The world thinks that like she killed this woman's dog and has stolen the kid and won't tell anyone where it is. And now that she's gone on a killing spree as well. So she goes back to Cabrini Green. She goes into the Candyman's like lair, which is upstairs of the apartment that she had seen before. And she's like, I'll be your victim if you let the kid go. This is where it starts to get like kind of weird. This is also sort of like a seduction scene between them. Then there's like the iconic moment from this movie, which is actually very short in execution. But like the famous thing is that like he has a ton of bees on him and like bees in his mouth. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's that's all real, too. That's like practical effects. Oh, that's horrible. Actually has like 30 bees inside of his mouth and they both have bees swarming all around them. That's disgusting, but good to know, I guess. Apparently he negotiated a contract where he got like a thousand dollars per sting. Damn. Then he says it was always you, Helen. And he shows her graffiti in the room that says it was always you, Helen. And then you see a painting of what looks like Helen in Victorian. I mean, this is supposed to be in America. So Victorian is inaccurate. Yeah, but like like, uh, Reconstruction era, post-Civil War. The implication seems to be, at least seemed to me, that this was the painting that he made of the woman he was in love with who he got pregnant. Yeah. And make of this what you will, the woman looks just like Helen. That's (laughs) not going to be answered. But that's a thing. Yeah. Then he takes the baby and he says, now it's time for another miracle, which is another strange thing. But Uh the climax of this movie is that he has put the baby on top of this, like, burning bonfire pyre which is another real practical effect thing that is crazy that is like set literally in real life was like 70 feet high and 30 feet wide damn Uh, just like all this junk that you see earlier in the movie and they said like that's for the bonfire and you're like oh that's gonna be bad later (laughs) (laughs) so they put the baby on top of it helen is at the bottom of it and she's gotta get up get the baby and get out of it as the residents of cabrini green have set it on fire Because they think the Candyman is in there and they're going to rid themselves of the Candyman. Exactly. And it ends with Helen doing it just in time. She catches on fire. All of her hair burns off. So she looks really scary and she's actively on fire. But she gets out of it and she gives the baby back to Anna Marie, who's there in the Mm. crowd. And the Candyman is like screaming, doesn't want her to do this, burns in the pyre, seemingly dies. The original Candyman seemingly is burned to death because like his bee insides were exposed or whatever. (laughs) And Helen also dies from the burn wounds. And from generally having had a rough couple of days. (laughs) Yes, that's true. (laughs) Then we cut to her funeral and it's like a very private funeral. It's like just her husband, the student who we found out the husband is actually sleeping with and like the professor guy from earlier. And then, like, a huge parade of the Cabrini Green residents come, led by Anna Marie, 
who throws a hook onto her grave. That's not explained in the first movie. Then we cut to the husband, seemingly like now racked with guilt over everything that happens, who looks in the mirror, says Helen's name five times. And then Helen appears to him as the new candy man with like her all of her hair burned off, looking like a monster with a hook for his hand, kills him and frames the student for his death. That's the end of the movie. And the it first is Candyman is dead. So Helen is the new Candyman. Everyone is dead. <laughs> it's very metal. Okay, so that's just wild. I want to take a, a little side path here to go down a deep rabbit hole. All right. Mm-hmm. Because in 1995, there was a sequel to the first Candyman called Candyman Farewell to Flesh. Right. Directed by Bill Condon. <laughs> Yes, uh, Twilight, the Twilight Saga Breaking Dawn Part 1 and 2 fame. <laughs> it also starred Tony Todd, but I don't think it starred any of the rest of them. So apparently there's more Candyman stuff, and then also a Candyman 3, Day of the Dead, 1999. Still starring Tony Todd, so I'm glad he got like some good work out of this, at least. Mm-hmm. Those are, what, irrelevant to this sequel? Are they ignored by the sequel that we're actually talking about today? Yes, those two movies were poorly received, Mm -hmm. and they were both ignored and considered not canon by Mm -hmm. Candyman 2021, which is a direct sequel to Candyman 1992. Now, where do the Candyman stands stand? That is a good question. I don't really know. But I don't think that there are many fans of those two movies. Okay, fair enough. I think Candyman is like, the 1992 one is like original enough, notable for having this really provocative race element in it, mm-hmm. and has like this urban legend angle to it that it has sort of like continued in popularity, even though it's not like Nightmare on Elm Street, Halloween, like... Mm-hmm a slasher one that is on the top of everyone's list to revisit, you know? Sure. But I don't think the other two are really discussed much. Mm. So how did you feel about this first one? I texted you like right afterwards and was like, I think this perfectly fit into our run of Denis Villeneuve movies. Mm -hmm. Like it felt of a piece with everything that we had been, that we'd been watching in some strange way. Mm -hmm. I don't know if this is like what the literal story was, but the very, like the clear metaphor to me was that she had been like killing people the whole time. She had been possessed by this story in such a way Mm. That she was enacting all of these acts of murder and she really was just crazy. And then at the very end, you know, when she saves the baby, it was like, like at the very beginning, she like talks about how she always wanted a baby. And then at the very end, like this baby's going to oh, die my. at like the very last moment, like mm. something in her like instinctually wants to save the baby. She like goes and saves the baby and like dies doing it. And is like kind of forgiven by the community for the violence enacted upon it because she like managed to save this kid. Mm. And I thought it was an interesting like look at like it's not even like a white savior complex, although it like becomes that like later on in the movie. But at first it's just like to some degree just like being interested in urban poverty porn basically and like using that as your master's thesis Like the thing that's going to get you published and like get your name on the map is like going and exploiting somebody else's real and legitimate pain. Mm -hmm. Like that seems complicated. 
Yeah. I, like I, and I don't know, like I'm not going to say straight up. It's a, like, it's a bad thing because that is how also like how people do research and like, you can't write about, I don't know. Like, yeah. Yeah. All of that stuff is like really complicated and tangled up and filtered through the lens of academia, you know, yeah, yeah. which is like kind of what is really interesting and unique and like complicating about it. Because like Helen is very aware of sort of all of like the racial stereotypes and taboos and attitudes of everyone around her Uh and is like trying to engage with those, you know, but is also engaging from like academia bent like. Well, and she's like she's claiming neutrality for herself. Mm-hmm. A neutrality that no living person can actually possess, you know. Yeah, in that 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 like neutrality of of academia, when it's really like she is a part of the cycle. She's not just like you can't just be an observer. Like observation changes, and she is also sort of taking advantage of that because like she is going to this poor area of Chicago mm-hmm. that most white people are like terrified of. Yeah. You know, still to this day, like Fox News and and everyone like portrays Southside Chicago as like a war zone. Yeah. Like get off the train. Do not go anywhere near Southside Chicago. Mm-hmm. And Helen is like willing to go there and just like engage with everyone there as a real human being. But when she gets there, everyone thinks she's a cop mm-hmm. and they're scared of her. And she like uses that to her advantage to be able to like yeah. get in and out unharmed. So she is also sort of like taking advantage of the system in some ways. Yeah. But then she is also like constantly mentioning it and talking about it. Like she gets attacked by some gang guys. One of them is holding a hook, as we mentioned. The police come and rescue her and arrest the guys. And like when she gets out of prison, like what she has to say about that is like, it's so messed up that this black woman was killed, called the police. They wouldn't come. Uh And like the second a white lady gets hurt, there's like 30 cops there to bring everyone in, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Because then they think he's the one that killed the original lady too. Right. Because he hit her with a hook and she was killed with a hook. They assumed that he was also responsible for her death. It seems to me that the director, the writer director Bernard Rose's take on all of this stuff, even though there are like a lot of really provocative things in it, I feel like his take ultimately is summed up by the speech that Anna Marie gives early in the movie, which is basically like everyone's scared to come here and people think that every black person here is harboring drugs or doing unsafe things and we're constantly portrayed this way but we're just normal people like everyone else raising our kids living a normal life that is like the speech that Anna Marie gives it seems from like most of the stuff I've read from Bernard Rose that that was really about the full extent of his vision for this Hmm was sort of being like, it's so ridiculous that everyone is saying, don't go to Southside Chicago. Those are just normal people. Like, I'm going to make a movie that is sort of about that. Like, her funeral is such a miserable affair. And then all of those people show up and are like, Uh they're like paying respects to her. I don't know how they feel about her exactly, but they're like there, which is interesting too. Yeah. And there isn't really any sort of racial element to the Candyman in this movie, like in terms of who he's killing or like his personal motivation. Oh, yeah. He's really just trying to get Helen to be his victim. Yeah. He's basically like asking for her consent and killing people until he gets it. 
it's either just because she happened to be the one to say his name or because she was always the one who was reincarnated. Like he's like, she's his reincarnated bride from the way back times which is also what did you what did you make of this abs- it was always absolutely you, nothing i was like i'm just ignoring that i was like i like this movie that's not a thing that's happening i said no to that one i was like cool it was helen all along i'm gonna take that as a confirmation of my theory and ignore the part where maybe she's a reincarnation because that's too weird for me to handle Clive Parker is about that reincarnation, though. So, but it seems like almost sort of a sad ending for Candyman. If like he's finally found oh, his love again, yeah, that's this true. whole movie. He's asking for her to be with him. She eventually says yes, but then in the end, he dies and doesn't get to be with her. Damn. And she like takes his place as this monster. Damn. A couple of other things I want to mention. We haven't called this out, but there's an incredible child performance in this film. Oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> One of the best I've seen in any movie by this little kid who lives in Cabrini Green. The character's name is Jake. And I will say, for me, a huge opportunity not bringing back this character in the sequel because he is like a huge standout of the original, just as like a kid who is cool with Helen, like an eight year old kid who saved her life. And he plays like comedy and fear and sorrow all throughout this movie and does it all really well. Yeah. The rules of summoning Candyman are also weird and inconsistent even in this first movie. Because the first kill we see, uh-huh. the very the very first kill we see, which is just like this one-off, like almost classic slasher stuff. Yeah, of yeah. Like a high school couple who are home alone. And yeah. it's a scene where they're looking in the mirror. The boyfriend says it four times and then leaves. And then mm-hmm. the girlfriend says it once and then he appears. Uh-huh. So then I was like, okay... So it's not per person, it's per mirror. It's like, it doesn't matter who says it, if it's right. said five times looking in a mirror oh, by yeah, anyone, yeah, yeah. then he appears. But then the next time we see it, two characters say it simultaneously four times, uh-huh. meaning it's been said eight times in the mirror. <laughs> and then one of them leaves, and then the other one says it once, and then he appears. Okay. And it is similarly confusing throughout. It's also like not as simple as he shows up and he kills you. Or maybe it is supposed to be that simple until Helen. And it's not that simple with Helen because she's his reincarnated lover. (laughs) Which is like a theory that I buy, but that you are making up on the spot. Like (laughs) that movie did not tell you that. The movie yeah. did not lay that out for you. No, but I'm saying it's not a thing where, like, you yeah, say yeah, and yeah, he yeah. kills you. No, that's true. Most of the killing he does is in, like, relation to Helen, and it's of, like, people who are either in her way or that she loves. Yeah, and most of those people don't say his name? Not at all. Some of those people can see him, like, Bernadette can see him, but it is revealed in, like, a pretty cool but small manner in the first film, where he, like, appears to her in her hospital room... And then later she sees, like, security footage of that happening. Oh, and he doesn't show up. And he doesn't show up on the security footage. So that is, like, something. But it's not a thing in this first film, which is going to be, like, a huge thing in the second film that you can only see him in a mirror. That's not in the first Uh, film. Oh, yeah, that's not not a thing. Probably because they didn't have the technology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Straight up. Like, they may have done it if if they could have. Everything is like a practical effect in the first movie. That is also something that makes it a lot scarier. I will say, personally, I didn't think 
I was not scared in any capacity by the first movie. It just like wasn't scary to me, but it was very interesting. I, and I wasn't disappointed that it wasn't scary. It wasn't that it like it was just deeply unnerving is what I, is yeah. like kind of what I got took from it. I was just like continued to think about it. I was like, oh, what, mm-hmm. a, hor- what a horrible thing. <laughs> what a horrible thing to have happened to you. That would really ruin your yeah. whole, whole week. It was almost closer to me for like a sci-fi movie where there are like yeah. so many complications and so many unique things I was trying to say. Yeah. And most of the movie was keeping up with those. Would you want to give an MVP for the first one? MVP is, oh, it's hard, Anna Marie. Mm-hmm. She like has to play a wide range in like very brief bursts, but like sell it every time and kind of be like in some ways the emotional center of the film. Yeah. And I think she does a a terrific job. She would be my first pick for MVP too. She is really incredible and sells everything. But my my second pick would be Jake, just as Mm -hmm. you mentioned. A great child performance. And you know, Bernadette is good too. And also the husband is like a great creepazoid. He is a great creepazoid. (laughs) Yeah, you're right. <laughs> a great like '90s sad sack in like professor sweaters and like extremely balding and sort of slinking around. Dude, it's so satisfying when she kills him at the end. Mm-hmm. That's what I mean about this like rule of cool. They were like, no, we don't care. We want to watch her gut this guy like a fish. Well, the scene that's like also so satisfying is when she like comes back to the house to try and connect with him after like escaping Uh, and then finds out that he is living. That's another another creepy thing in this movie is that it appears that things transpire over about a day. And then she is told that she has been like asleep for a month in this hospital while being drugged. Yeah. And like the world has continued around her and she hasn't even realized it. Damn, that's like, scary. That's too. another creepy thing. But I don't know. It just it just is interesting. Like it is a movie that wants to dive into race relations and wants to talk about Chicago and has a lot to say seemingly a pro-black message but coming from a white creator and a white protagonist and like viewed through that lens very much yeah putting that aside for now (laughs) shall we turn to Candyman 2021 directed by Nia DaCosta Mm -hmm. and written by her Jordan Peele and one other person whose name escapes me Yeah, so the first draft of this new one was co-written by Jordan Peele, which is obviously why we're talking about this. All the movies written by Jordan Peele. Co-written by Jordan Peele and Wynn Rosenfeld. Now, this is Wynn Rosenfeld's first film credit on a screenplay, but he is the president of Monkey Paw Productions, Jordan Peele's production company. So he has worked closely with Jordan Peele for like forever. That first draft was written by them. Then when Nina DaCosta came on board to direct, she wrote a second draft, which was the shooting script. I would like to say right here that I would really like to check out and plan too soon her first feature that she also uh, wrote and directed Mm -hmm. called Little Woods, uh, starring Tessa Thompson and Lily James. So it should be exciting. It's a crime thriller. Yes. I plan to check that out sometime soon. I wanted to before we recorded this and could not find time. Yeah, that's her first film, which came out in 2019, which she wrote and directed. Then this one, which she has rewritten and directed. She is now currently filming The Marvels, which is an MCU movie. It's Captain Marvel 2, but sort of like a team-up movie about Captain Marvel Uh, Monica Rambeau from WandaVision, who is played by Tiana Paris, who is in this movie. 
and uh, Miss Marvel, who's going to have her own Disney Plus show before this wow. movie comes out. But she is currently filming that, which makes her uh, not just the first female black director in the MCU, but the youngest director of an MCU movie ever at Whoa. 31 years old. Wow. Good for her. That's Isn't so that cool. Awesome? That is so awesome. Well, Wade. And this new one, and this new one was released August twenty seventh, twenty twenty one. Just came out this weekend. It's an hour and thirty one minutes. A music by Robert A. A. Lowe. The music in this is also, I would say, very distinctive and unique and cool, although mm-hmm. very different from the Philip Glass stuff. And obviously, we don't have the full numbers yet, but it had a really successful first weekend. Sweet. A budget of 25 mil. And I just read as we started to record this that it made um, 27 mil in its first weekend. Wow. Okay. And I can say I saw this Saturday night and the the screening was sold out. So people definitely seem into it. And I think... I think they spent a lot on marketing in this one, too. I um, saw it this afternoon in an empty house, but that's what you can expect at an afternoon in August on the beach. So hmm. where where should we start? Where Do you want to walk through the this? plot of this? OK, movie yes. OK, so walking through the plot of this one. So this movie is a legacy sequel. It's uh-huh. ignoring the two. It's bringing back actors from the original. It takes yeah. place. It takes place in 2019. So 27 years after the original. Uh huh. This seems to me to be a case where watching the first movie is kind of a spoiler for the second movie. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Not necessarily a bad thing, but I do think like, I think that like your experience of this movie is very different depending on if you've seen the first movie or not going into it. I am certain that that is true. But on the other hand, I feel like this movie would also be a spoiler for the first one. Yeah. So you couldn't really, yeah. you couldn't really do it that way either. So, okay. This movie starts with the production logos being flipped backwards as though you're watching them through a mirror, which Which is is the coolest thing in the world. So cool. So cool and so weird that for like the first 30 seconds, I was convinced that like the reel was flipped and that it was like somehow going backwards. And the first one also starts with shots looking down at Chicago in the middle of the day. And this one starts with, in the middle of the night, shots from the ground of the Chicago, like looking up and sort of being reflected as though the buildings are like floating in midair. It's, that is so ghostly. It's so cool. Basically, there's this guy. He's an artist. He's a black artist in Chicago being put up by these snooty art people. Mm-hmm. And he, a lot of his work seems to have been dealing with like racial trauma in some way. And then he hears the story of the Candyman and is like, this is a perfect outlet for what I want to say. But the story that he hears about the Candyman is very different from the story that we hear in the first one. So we should get into that for a second. Yes. Because the story that he hears from this old guy who is like around Cabrini Green is that in the 70s, there was this guy with a hook for a hand, just like a normal guy, but with a hook for a hand, who used to give out candy to the kids, like out in the middle of the street. Some kids found razor blades in their candy. Some kids found razor blades in their candy and thought he did it, but it, yes. wasn't, but it wasn't necessarily the candy that he had given out. A little white mm. girl did. Specifically, it was mm. like a white girl that found the razor blade in her candy. And then the cops went down and were like looking for him. And so he hid. He had hidden in like this hole in the wall of the project. And this young kid saw him and screamed because he like got scared and thought. But the guy was just like trying to be friendly and give him some candy. 
And then the cops came and shot and killed the guy and like piled on him. Mm -hmm. And that then there was like a curse from that guy and that his ghost kept coming back and killing people. From then on, people would say, if you say Candyman in the mirror Mm -hmm. five times, he will appear and he will kill you. Yeah. That is the specific way that it's told in this movie. And so this guy whose name is Anthony, but we don't get that for a ways into the movie, I feel like. No, I feel like it's teased. No, it's said early. It's about 10 or 15 minutes in. In the scene with the art critic. Oh. Or, no, no, no. Sorry. In the scene with, I don't even know what his relationship is, but he's one of the curators for the show. Uh-huh. This like very hipster white guy. He says Anthony McCoy. Oh, okay. Because I didn't even like hear it when it happened then. I, I don't know. In some ways I had like forgotten that that was even somebody mm. we should be, we should be remembering. And I was so in on the plot that was already happening. I forgot that he was the baby, but he's the baby that gets pulled out of the fire in the first. And if you have seen the first one, that is not hidden from you. If you haven't, then you would not know that. Yes, until much, much later in the movie. By the way, I read that, I did not catch this myself, but I read that his name is only said five times in this movie. And the fifth time is when he uh, undergoes the transformation at the end of this movie. Whoa, that's cool. So Anthony, as we've said, is this artist. He's living with his girlfriend, Brianna, Mm -hmm. played by Tiana Paris, who is an art curator. And he gets inspired by the tale that I don't know the character's name, but Coleman Domingo is the actor Mm -hmm. who's really good. And he's on like a tear recently from Ma Rainey. I saw him in Zola, too, which he was great in. He is so good in this movie. And he is on a slow burn. Yeah. Like, he is, like, doing something else in this movie. But you don't know until, like, far in. And by the time it, like, by the time it starts to really come out, you're like, oh, it's been so obvious the whole time. But it yeah. totally worked on me, it too. It worked. It like, worked. When, when that is revealed, I was like, well, I guess I should have known that they cast Coleman Domingo as this guy. He was probably <laughs> going to be important. But, like, it totally worked on me. Yeah. But he is the grown-up version of that kid who mm-hmm. saw the Candyman yeah. murder in the 70s, which happened in a laundromat. Now he runs a laundromat in, like, the basically now abandoned, like, project section of cabrini green that's still left Mm -hmm. anthony lives in like a high-rise gentrified fancy chicago apartment that is built on cabrini green ground yeah and he gets inspired by the story he makes visual art pieces about this so this new one is like very much i would say a visual art movie yeah in the way the first movie is an academia movie yeah One thread is that Anthony gets stung by a bee while Uh he's looking around Cabrini Green, which starts like the bee sting starts like spreading all across his hand, which is eventually his arm. Truly gross. And at like a certain point, like when it gets to be about the size of a quarter, I was like, why the hell hasn't he gotten that checked out yet? And by the time it's like his whole arm is rotting away, he's like, oh, maybe I should go to the hospital for this. So he creates this art exhibit and people start dying. He's made an art exhibit that's a mirror that says, say Candyman's name. 
but also you open it up and you can look through and there's like visual art, which is also a subtle reference to the original movie, but is never yeah. talked about anywhere else that that's like what it would look like. The bathroom mirror would open up and you could like see into the room and there'd be all this cre- creepy graffiti and stuff. So there is that same visual art element, like tying back in from the first one. Yeah, I don't know. The structure of this one like there is less of a ramp up to the ending than there is in the first one. Mm. It is more sort of that, like this version of Candyman is going mm-hmm. around and killing people. Mm-hmm. And all of them are related to Anthony this time. But Anthony isn't being framed in the way that Helen is in the first. Even one. though he's being at least as suspicious as Helen is <laughs> yes. in the first one. If not more so. But we see no instances of like him being considered a suspect or people interviewing him or anything like that. Which is, I think, very strange because like I think that's so, like such a specific fear of the first one. Yeah, this movie is like totally different in the scares it's going for than the first one. Yeah. And a lot of the scares that it would make sense from the first one are not here. But it has new ideas. The thing that works the most for me is the body horror. This idea that, like, his arm is being taken over. Yeah, that's cool. That's really scary. This one is also definitely much bloodier Mm -hmm. than the first one. There's also this thing with his girlfriend, Brianna, where because of, like, her connection to these murders, she is sort of being, like, elevated. Her voice is being elevated Mm. in the art world. Mm -hmm. But that never adds up either. And people are respecting her more. And we also see that her father was an artist who killed himself, which she witnessed as a child. Yeah. Does it feel like this movie is missing 30 minutes? Yeah. It feels like it's missing at least 20 minutes. I love the way this movie ends, but it also feels like it's missing some significant amount of either wrap up or just fleshed out stuff for the third act before that final like showdown. Let me hone in on a specific element a little bit here. We hear the stories told throughout the movie, and one of them is the story of the first movie, which is told through shadow puppets. The story of the first movie is told in a way that we know did not happen. They say that, like, Helen was this lady who went crazy. The story is not connected to Candyman at all, but she went crazy. She killed a lot of people. She started a bonfire and was trying to kill this baby, Anthony McCoy, who she had kidnapped. And then basically, like, they stopped her, they got the baby back, and then she burned herself alive. And having watched the first movie, we know that that's not true, or at least not what was shown in the first movie. Right. And we know that he's the baby, but he doesn't know that. And he keeps getting calls from his mom, and he won't answer. So having seen the first movie, this is sort of like the legacy thing they're teasing out, that you're like, okay, Anna Marie is going to be in this. She's going to, like drop some knowledge on him like yes. tell him what it's like tell him what the deal is be like confront your past so eventually at the end mm-hmm. maybe 110 into this 130 movie yeah. he goes and sees his mom anna marie played by the same actress vanessa williams who's excellent in this five minute scene that she has to okay well, well i'll talk about her later but she's incredible um and she looks unbelievable she looks like just like the first movie I mean, unbelievable. I saw a lot of people who had not seen the first movie who were like, why did they cast an actress younger than him to play his mom? 
And she's 58. And she looks exactly the Damn. same as the first movie. Damn. His mom reveals to him that he was the baby. She hid it from him his whole life because she didn't want him to be like scarred by that knowledge. Mm-hmm. And she reveals, this is an interesting element that maybe they don't do a ton with, but that everyone from that Cabrini Green circle agreed that they would never talk about Candyman again. Oh. And that is sort of the explanation given of the end of the first movie, which is that like the mom knew the truth about Helen. She knew that she had been possessed by the Candyman. Mm-hmm. It wasn't really her actions. Right. And like they all agreed to like let the legend die and they buried the hook with Helen and they were like, that's the end of it. It'll never hurt anyone again. They also don't know that she went later, rose from the grave and killed her husband. They don't know. But the idea that this movie has is that there are candy men. This is the idea Mm. that Coleman Domingo is kind of talking about is that like there are different versions of the legend. But the legend that this movie is all about is this specific guy, Sherman, who is the guy from the 70s who was killed. And he became the Candyman. And every time Mm -hmm. we see the Candyman kill any of these people, it's always that guy. It's not Tony Todd. It's not the character from the original. It's this new Candyman who's like an older guy and so the idea is that coleman domingo has okay yeah. okay help me through this coleman domingo says Candyman isn't real it's like something that we tell ourselves to like deal with the trauma of what's happening so like he as a child saw 50 police officers murder an innocent man yeah and everyone said it was Candyman, and he is saying that's like how they deal with it then huh. At the end of the movie, it is revealed that Coleman Domingo saw his sister after this as a child summon Candyman and Candyman killed his sister. Yeah. And it was that same guy. So he saw Sherman then as the Candyman. Yes. Presumably maybe like a year later murder his sister. Yeah. Do you want to walk through how this all comes together in the end? I feel like I'm talking a lot. Okay, yeah, you are, but I'm appreciating it because it is it is like clarifying some things. Hearing you say it is like, yeah, okay, that that is what happened. But get this, dude, because if you were following my metaphor on this, mm-hmm. then I think that dude, Coleman Domingo's character, as a young kid, was so messed up by seeing this guy get killed that he killed his sister. And he said that it was Candyman, you know? And I think like I think that's the recurring theme in this you know, in this whole thing is that people are like referring cycles of like trauma and violence are being like blamed on this Mm. external force thing. That's kind of what's going on. But what he attempts to do at the end of this movie is he brings Anthony into the church, into this creepy church that's there on Cabrini Green. And it's the church where he was baptized. He has got Anthony there. Anthony's arm has like completely rotted and like the rot has like gone up half of his body, Mm -hmm. even onto his face almost at this point, making him look more like the rotted away like version of Candyman that you see in the first movie almost like he's on his way to like that with like how he's got, you know, the exposed ribs and all this stuff. So like that's kind of weird. And uh, then at this point, Colm Domingo cuts off our friend Anthony's arm and jams a meat hook in there, which is one of the most horrifying things yeah. I've ever, ever beheld. And then like binds it up and is like, he's going to be Candyman now. Don't you see the cops are going to come in here and kill him. And then he's going to live forever. And people are going to say his name. And there, that also ties into the first movie. Cause in the first movie, they're like, die with me and you live forever in legend in urban mm-hmm. myth. 
you know? Right. And then she... She being Brianna. Who oh, yeah, sorry. Domingo who, has also kidnapped and is yes, watching all of this. Yes, sorry. At this point, yes. Brianna has been brought back in. Although I also think she's strangely absent from... Like, I don't know if this movie is always sure who the protagonist is. I was going to ask you who you thought the protagonist is, because... I would be... Ba- I, like, it's a it's <laughs> baffling to me. I think the end of this movie definitely says... Like, the last 20 minutes, definitely Brianna. It feels like at the beginning that it's Yaya's movie, who's playing Anthony. But then, towards the end, it feels more like Brianna's movie. But at the end here, she is like, well, this is obviously horrible. Um, so she like tries to run away. She ends up stabbing Coleman Domingo's character to death. Viciously. Viciously. I mean, and that is like a moment that could take its whole own unpacking. Mm-hmm. Like of like what is going on with her when she like she really goes in on him. You are right that she, I feel like, is the character least served by this 90 minute version of the movie we're watching. Yeah. Because like she has plot threads both in the past and in the present that are not paid off at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In ways that I feel like it really could be. Like, I think she's an interesting, compelling character and a great actress. Oh, yeah. So I feel like everything is there for that to have a better payoff than it does. I yeah. Think. But anyway, she is, she escapes. Coleman Domingo has called in the cops, has like phoned in the cops too at some mm-hmm. point so that this whole plan can go down the way he wants it to. And, and then it does. It goes down exactly, basically the way that he said it would. The cops do show up. They do kill, kill Anthony, Anthony, who is already pretty, pretty much dead, pretty much dead and messed up at this point, too. But they do kill him. They arrest Brianna. They have her in the car. There's this cop who's like doing the dirty cop routine where he's like telling her what story she's going to tell the court about like what like what happened there and like how the officer was like lunged at by Anthony, which is definitely not what happened. He's like lying in her arms, bleeding out already when he comes in. And then he's like, oh, or you can be charged as like a co-conspirator essentially. And in that moment, she's like, all right, I'll tell you anything you want me to, but just let me look at myself in the mirror real quick. (laughs) And you're like, oh, hell yeah. (laughs) And then she summons Candyman and Anthony appears and kills all of these cops. Anthony as Candyman. Yeah. Anthony as Candyman like shows up with the bees like swarming around them and like in a pretty hype sequence like kills all of these cops. Mm-hmm. And she get and like does not kill her and she gets out, which is again like the strange mythology of what's going on with who gets killed when you say Candyman's name. Right. Is she protected by Candyman? Because it's Anthony, is she protected by Candyman because it's like a race thing where he's protecting her from like white evildoers? What's happening? It's yeah. it's unclear, but it's totally hype. And, yeah. <laughs> and he kills all these dudes. And then he looks at her and he says, tell everyone. And then he cuts to, cut to credits. He looks at her uh-huh. and he becomes Tony oh, Todd. He does. From the yeah, original yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah all the bees like fly away from his face and it's Tony Todd. Yeah. It's a, it's that CGI de-aged Tony Todd to look like the first movie. And he says, tell everyone. And we cut to black again. I think they went for like metal ending Mm -hmm. that does not necessarily tie into whatever the rest of the movie was working with. (laughs) Yeah. Like, or like not, not all the way it like ties in kind of, but not all the way. Yeah, it's really interesting to me that both of these movies, despite having 
very different strengths and weaknesses uh-huh. sort of like both fall in the same pitfalls of like not paying off things and having weird endings and having like very complicated messy mythology that are totally different from each other yeah, yeah also completely <laughs> different and fairly contradictory because it's also not ever does uh what's her name from the first movie show up as a candy man she is referenced in like the paper cutout history of Anthony, mm-hmm. but she's not ever like implicated as a candy man or as somebody who would be haunting them at all. So I've got a little bit about this. Okay. In the behind the scenes. Cool. So the only time that Virginia Madsen appears in this movie is that she has recorded new dialogue. Oh, interesting. As Helen from the original movie that Anthony listens to as he sort of listens to like this recording that she was making throughout the first movie. And that's the only time she appears in the whole movie. And the only time Tony Todd appears in the whole movie is as that like CGI de-aged. At the very, very end. Which I think is kind of a missed opportunity, specifically because they were advertising him that he was like back to play the Candyman. Oh, huh. And that to me is like if you had advertised Rogue One that like Carrie Fisher is back playing Princess Leia. Right. Because it is like the same amount of screen time. It is like 30 seconds of a CGI character. Yeah, a weird CGI version of them. That they have voiced. And also at the beginning, I wasn't sure if that was Tony Todd or not because I don't know what he looks like now as an old guy. And the yeah. other character is like an older Candyman. So I was like, is he playing a different character that they wrote so they could get around the fact that he wouldn't have aged? Uh huh. No, that's that's Michael Hargrove, I think is his name. It's just another mm-hmm. actor playing another character. The idea of bringing in another Candyman is so yes. strange. Just like another one that's not part of the cycle. So then is Tony Todd the real Candyman? And that other guy... He's the original. They say that. He is the original. We know that. But like, does that make him more real? Is he a second? Like another one? Or is it all like a continuum of Candyman? Do you know what I'm saying? The end credits shed a little bit of light on this. The end credits are done entirely in this like puppet form that we've Uh seen throughout the whole movie. But the end credits tell five stories... The Mm -hmm. first one is of the original Candyman. We see Uh basically his life of being the painter and then getting the hands Mm -hmm. sewn off. The second one is um, like a kid on a bicycle Mm -hmm. who a lady like points at him and he gets the cops called on him. Mm -hmm. The third one is Sherman, who's the Mm -hmm. Candyman throughout this whole movie. The fourth one is Helen and it's her story from the first movie. And the fifth one is Anthony and it's his story from this movie that we've just watched. Yeah. And then it ends with the five of them all as candy men standing together with like the hooks. Hmm. I guess part of the reason for this is that they had the weird problem that both Candyman, as we knew him, Tony Todd and Helen are dead. So they should look the same. Mm. So I guess maybe that is the problem is just that like you would either need to hire a new actor or CGI them the whole time yeah because they wouldn't have aged at all if you want if you were like being honest to that i guess maybe that's why they did this Hmm. but this is what i've got on this people were saying that the first draft of the screenplay which had leaked out i was trying to get my hands on it to read it for this and i couldn't but that the jordan peele win rosenfeld script what like went a little bit more in on helen 
as being sort of like an example of the gentrification that this movie is talking Mm. about. And that there was a sequence in that script where Anthony is taken to jail Mm. and in jail, he summons the Helen candy man who then appears to him and like murders everyone in the police station for him to get out. See, that's that honestly makes more sense and is pretty dope. That was not in the place of anything. Uh-huh. Like all of the Domingo stuff was still there. Yeah, yeah. Ultimately being all of the multiple Candyman stuff was still in that version of the script. Yeah. So I can see how it's like a little bit stuffed. Yeah. But that was there. Now, here's the interesting thing. I don't think that stuff ever got filmed. But in the first trailer for this movie, the first trailer for this movie, which was released February 27th, 2020. Mm-hmm. Go back and watch this. There's like dialogue that is in the film, but everything else in this trailer is in the movie, right? Because this is all stuff that they filmed, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Two minutes and six seconds in, you see the church scene. That's the climax of this movie. And in it, there is a woman sitting in the back pew watching it. So there's like a shot of just her. And then there's a shot of like the scene from the back and you see everyone else. And you also see this woman back there. And people are saying that that's supposed to be Helen. Now, it doesn't really look like Helen as we ever uh, saw her. Uh-huh. It does look like a woman who was burned alive. Okay. It looks like a charred corpse, like in a dress with Helen's hairstyle, sitting there and watching the events happening. So I don't know if that's supposed to be Helen or not, but we know that that was filmed and cut out of the version of the movie okay. that was released. Wow. That's interesting. That's my behind the scenes. That's what I cool. dug up on this. Well, should we should we flop or bop this movie? Yeah, let's flop or bop it. Let's just do it. What do you think? Flop or bop? Uh, bop to this one as well as the mm-hmm. first one. I will say I think I slightly prefer the first one, mm-hmm. uh, but not by a huge amount. Flop or bop for 2021? Bop. Here's the, here's the thing. First movie from 1992 has a lot of ideas. I'm grading it on a curve because it is from 1992. And it has like things to say about race. And I'm not sure if it successfully says those things or if those are like intelligent things. Mm-hmm. But it is like trying to get in there and do something. And it's really interesting. And it is just compelling as a film of, in other interesting ways. Mm-hmm. And this one is also doing all of those things. But also, I feel like fails to come together. And it's just like you've had more time to think about it. I kind of feel like the first one has more things to say and more provocative things to say about race specifically. This one obviously has like the art lens, which was maybe some of the most interesting stuff of the movie to me. Mm -hmm. And like it brings up, but never like does anything with the idea of them being artists who gentrify like the discussion of like, do artists contribute to gentrification or is that question completely beside the point because it's the city that gentrifies but the answer of this movie is to literally stand up and walk out of the room when that question is brought up and turn it back into a slasher (laughs) like as soon as like the idea gets brought up it's like well okay but we're not gonna have that conversation that was some of the most interesting stuff to me yeah idea that like the city asks artists to move into places um, when they're gentrifying them because like there's very low rent and artists mm-hmm. are normally poor. But then once artists live there, it's mm-hmm. cool. Yeah. And other people live there and they have like contributed to the thing. 
Yeah. Which is certainly something that I can relate to in my life. I mean, yeah, certainly. We have certainly profited off of that ourselves. We have certainly lived in like poor areas where we saw the rent go up while we lived there, you know? Yeah. 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 Although we certainly didn't make it cooler by us being there. <laughs> no. And we also unfortunately had day jobs. Yeah, uh, which which is the slight they give against artists in this movie. Well, I sometimes had a day job. <laughs> well, this is the other thing is that like there's this interesting angle that all of the main characters in this movie are like seemingly well off, yeah, like, very upper class, which I guess is similar to the first movie. Well, but our, our characters are like a museum curator, an artist, and a real estate broker. But I think that I think that he is like living off of her. And that's like a tension that we don't see it. But then at the other on the other hand, she like moves out of the apartment. Yeah. And so is it like, is it their Oh, they do say it's their apartment, their new apartment. They just moved in together. Yeah. Okay. I think there's an interesting directorial thing that Nia is doing. Mm -hmm. It's clear that like a conscious decision that Nia DaCosta made directing the script is to never show on screen any violence done against black people. Mm -hmm. Because the events of the first movie, which involve violence being done to black people, and the story of the Candyman we hear are both shown in shadow puppets. Mm -hmm. The black characters who are killed in this film, Anthony and Coleman Domingo, are killed off screen. Mm -hmm. Like the camera is basically just above where they are. Mm -hmm. And all of the killing, like the slasher movie stuff, is all white victims. Mm Mm-hmm. So I think that's really cool and interesting. Also, the the other the black character that we see Candyman kill is the boy's sister who is mm-hmm. killed off screen. Yeah. I think that's cool and interesting, but I wonder if that is the reason why it feels like the main characters are not involved with the action in this movie, unlike the first movie. Yeah. I kept expecting her brother to die or someone else close and important yeah. to them to die. Because like, that's mm-hmm. the thing that I think really sells it in the first movie is when Bernadette dies, like less than halfway through the movie, you're like, anything can happen because yeah. we liked her. She seemed like a solid, good, like main character. And now she is just dead. And her brother, who is a big, her brother and his boyfriend, who are big parts of this movie, uh-huh. are just like absent for the last third of this movie. Yeah, Never just- come into the plot whatsoever. Yeah. And Brianna, too, it feels like is sort of sidelined for a little bit until she comes back in. It feels like all of the slasher sequences are sort of like separate from the movie. Yeah, I was very much wondering what the high school girls had to do with any of it. Seemingly nothing. Like nothing at all other than that girl had been to the art show. Feels like filler in a movie that is already the bare minimum a movie could be. Yeah. Lengthwise. Yeah. I think this is scarier than the first one. Joe, a lot scarier. But I do think that I was expecting it to be a little scarier. Like, I think compared to Get Out and Us, this to me was like not even close. Do you think that had something to do with like kind of being spoiled on it? No, I don't think so. Because I think the moments that I felt were actually scary in this did work. Yeah. Even in the slasher sequences, a lot of the killing happens off screen Mm -hmm. or like weirdly in mirrors and stuff. And it's like interesting visually, but I definitely think the packed house that I saw this with was also expecting something a little bit scarier. 
Interesting. Because they like really came to life in those killing sequences. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which are pretty few and far between. And I think that they were definitely expecting more of a movie where you are sort of like scared the whole time. Yeah. Instead of like a drama rumination that has like three or four slasher sequences placed throughout it. Happening Hmm. to people who aren't really characters. Yeah. Who do you think the MVP of this film was? That's tough. We're going to take all, we're also, we're taking Brianna and Anthony off the table. Okay. As our two potential protagonists. That makes it a little bit easier then. Then I would give it, as I would in the first movie, to Vanessa Williams as Anna Marie McCoy. Yeah. Who like absolutely kills her scene. And I wish that she had more. I really wish they would have used her more because I think that she's so good in it. I will say during that scene, I was really scared that they were going to kill her. And I was like, Uh, if she dies, like, I would not be on board with this movie anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think she's awesome. And I was like, this woman gives two incredible performances 30 years apart. What else has she been doing? And I looked it up and she's been a series regular on Days of Our Lives since 2016. Wow. Like this incredible actress doing daytime soap operas. She probably kills it on that. She's probably amazing and has so much money. But I would be like, Hollywood, what are you doing? Why is this actress not in everything? Yeah, for real. She looks amazing and she's very good at playing all kinds of things yeah why is she not in more stuff put her in more things yeah she would be mine who would would your mvp be i'm gonna have to go with coleman domingo Mm. truly like unhinged at the end but from like a slow burn of like nice relatable guy all the way through like weird conspiracy guy to absolutely crazy is going to kill you guy and like all of the twists and turns in between Mm -hmm. in like a really cool way i don't know if you cut this but at the laundromat he's reading a book by clive barker i did i did i didn't catch what book it was but i did see clive barker yeah i I thought that was a nice touch Mm -hmm. he's really good i'd give a shout out to the brother too oh yeah i was gonna say he's a lot of fun and I thought the whole movie that the boyfriend, the brother's boyfriend was being played by Lil Dicky. <laughs> and it wasn't, but <laughs> it was just like, did they cast Lil Dicky and then like kind of make him look like Jack Harlow? <laughs> but um, no, is the answer to that. <laughs> All right. Well, would that count as your final thought on this film? <laughs> Can, okay. Wait, oh, okay. Wait, do we do? What else do we need to dig into about? Can it? we just kind of walk through the end? Like, okay. What did you think about the reveal? The reveal of Domingo and his like plan in this church. It doesn't make sense. I don't. I don't. <laughs> Can we back up? What is happening to Anthony? Like, what is this thing that Anthony is bitten by a bee and is like slowly becoming the Candyman? He's becoming the Candyman. I think. Well, I think he's doing it. Like, I think he's killing people straight up. I think he hears this legend i think he think he kills the art critic the whole thing is just a downward spiral into madness i think the bee sting is messed up i don't know what's going on with that and i thought that maybe at some point he would like have bees crawl out of him and there was a part where there was like a swarm of them because the wound looks like honeycombs yeah like it looks really disturbing yeah it looks like they could like come in and out of him but we never quite see it so i don't know if it really pays off but then okay so what is the plan because he's already becoming Candyman. that's the thing it's like it it, coleman domingo didn't have to do anything 
he's already like becoming possessed by the thing just from like hearing the story and having been the kid and having gotten stung by the bee. That's seemingly unrelated. Is this all because Anthony was the baby that Candyman took in the first one and like has been like blessed, cursed by him to be the new one, anointed? Yeah. He's the anointed one. If that was made clear a little bit more, that would be cool. You mean like if there's a moment where Coleman Domingo looked at him and said, you are the anointed one? Or if his mom told him that, and yeah. then we flash back to the uh, never explained moment in the first one, where Candyman yeah. takes him and says, now it's time for another miracle. Now it's time. For- exactly. Like, that's what I'm thinking. But I think I think these movies are for research-minded folks. It's like, these movies appeal to people who want to break out the little red string and the and the push pins and like tie it all you know like figure it all out hmm. so i think they're just dropping abstract clues to mess with people at this point i think that the twist with domingo would make more sense if we didn't find out that he knows Candyman is real like i think his whole thing would make a lot more sense if he was just a guy who was like we need another urban legend to deal with oh, the fact that oh, so yeah. much drama is happening the black people keep getting killed by the police and to right. do that i'm going to dress this guy up as candy man have him killed oh, by the police right right and then that's going to be the new urban legend yeah the community will feed on that that would that would you're right it would make more sense if he didn't know for real that candy man existed and saw the real Candyman kill his sister. Like, that's so weird. But it's also not clear if, like, him becoming the real Candyman is something that Coleman Domingo is aware of and or wants. I don't think that Coleman Domingo is aware of that. You don't? No. <laughs> like, but why did he t- cut the dude's arm off? I also saw people on Reddit saying that they thought maybe nobody but Anthony could see the thing happening on his hand and arm. Oh, that would make more sense. But that's never revealed, if so. That is never revealed. That would make sense, though. Like, another idea I love is the mom talking about how the whole community swore to, like, kill it by never talking about it again. Yeah. And that, to me, is this, like, really powerful idea of, like, this is part of the section where I'm like, is this a movie about storytelling? Where I was like, you need to tell people about the past in order to make sure it doesn't repeat itself. Right. And this whole, I feel like that's a big conversation in education right now is like, how much should we be talking about Mm -hmm. the horrific things that have happened in the past? But this to me, it seems like they're setting up a thing where like, because all the old people in the community were like, we'll never explain what happened. We'll never say that Candyman was bad. Then it just like all repeated itself and they failed, you know? That is also a beautiful explication of the idea, but yeah, it never quite hangs together. But all of it is potential in this movie, so watch it. It's good. Like yeah. It'll make you think about these things for sure. So Domingo then gets killed by Brianna, uh-huh. and then there's all this stuff with the cops. Where they kill Anthony. Seems a little surface level to me. Yes. Yes, to bring in that level of horrific imagery that's potent in the American psyche right now. Yeah. It seems a little mustache twirling, like specifically the way that the cops behave in terms of like rushing in and like, and I'm not saying this wouldn't happen. And and anyone who is a regular listener to the show knows that we have no love for police officers, but like that this man is like basically dead on the ground. And then like these dudes just run in and immediately like shoot him three times. I thought at first that they had shot Brianna. That is also what I thought, which would have made more sense and been more horrible. 
that would have been a worse ending that worked better. I have yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and then with the car, I don't know. That stuff just didn't totally work for me. It worked for me at the beginning when you're seeing the flashback of the little kid and all of them swarming. Mm, mm-hmm. That for me totally worked and made me tear up a little bit. And I have definitely like seen that just this past year alone. I've seen like 50 cop cars at a place, you know? Uh-huh. Or like all of that. And and that's what you see in that first scene. And I think that's like, that all felt real to me. And that yeah. sense of dread that like, whenever there are, you know, 30 or 50 police officers in one area that like, it is only going to lead to someone who is not a police officer being killed. Yeah. Yeah. So that worked. But yeah, at the end, like, and the very mustache twirling conversation the cop has with yeah. Brianna in the car. But then I do like the moment after that. I was kind of like, I don't like it, I don't like it. And then when he comes out, like... But it's like you kind of have to play them like Nazis so that it's hype when he kills them. You know, like, that's kind of part of it, too. It's like... I think it is still potent and still, like, a little bit shocking to watch, like, a heroic cop massacre. Yeah. Like, I don't think that we have really seen much like that on screen before. So, yeah, I do I do kind of see your point there. But I like in that moment that it almost becomes, like, about their relationship again. Mm-hmm. Which ties it back to the first one. Because the first one is really, like, about the relationship between the Candyman and Helen. Yeah. And it, like, ends with this, like, relationship between Anthony and Brianna that he is, like, still protecting her beyond the grave. And then it, like, finally ties back to the first one with you seeing Tony Todd. But I don't know. I just feel like this is a movie with 50 big ideas that maybe doesn't have time for all of them. Well, it's also only 91 minutes, too, so it's hard to have time for all those ideas. Yeah, for sure. What would your ranking be of this among the other peels? Ooh, I think if it's writing exclusively, I think it goes get out us Keanu this movie. Mm-hmm. But I think that when I ranked him earlier, I put us as my number one. Yeah. Because I like that movie the best. But I think like writing wise, I think that Get Out is the tightest. Mm. Yeah. I think like as a whole movie, I would go us, Get Out, Keanu this. Mm-hmm. I would put this at the bottom too. Yeah. Keanu is really good. Keanu is really good. Keanu also has big things to say. Keanu has big things to say. And I think Keanu pulls it all off. I think it like follows through on pretty much all of the ideas that it sets up. And I value that. Yeah. Let's see. Uh, any final thoughts? I just enjoyed watching these two movies. Yeah. Like there's a lot going on in both of them. I don't think that they managed to elevate the material with the new one, mm-hmm. which maybe is a little bit of a disappointment. But after the first one, I was like really excited to see the new one because I was like, there are so many directions you could take this. Mm-hmm. Like, there isn't a clear sequel set up in the first one. Yeah. Unless it's just, like, Helen is the Candyman. But to do that, you would have had to make it in 1993. Yeah. Yeah, but I feel like they, along the way, like, fell prey to a lot of the same problems that the first one has. Mm -hmm. But I still think it is, like, cool. I think it's really interesting. I like the art angle, which we didn't spend a ton of time talking about. But, like, that stuff is really interesting, I wish it paid off a little more, but I also wish the academia stuff paid off a little more in the first one, you know? Like, it's just sort of, like, tossing ideas out there. I feel like a lot of times people complain about, like, social elements being thrown into, like, Mm -hmm. legacy sequels or Mm -hmm. new versions emphasizing things that old versions didn't. But this, Mm -hmm. like, totally makes sense. Oh, yeah, Because the first one is, like, so provocative about race. Yeah. In, like, the trappings of a slasher movie. 
when you watch that first one, you're like, yeah, I get why Jordan Peele would want to. Would want to remake this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What would your final thoughts on these two be? I agree. They're thrilling movies. To watch it for the first, to watch the original for the first time um, was wonderful. And then to watch this so close on the heels was really cool too. I don't think I'd ever like been introduced to a series, watch the first and then watch the legacy sequel, like all that close together at once. So pretty sweet. I would definitely recommend. Wade, now is the moment for me to tell the listener that Bumtober is coming. Send your serious mm. suggestions to cinemabumspod at gmail.com or DM <laughs> us at cinemabums on the Instagram. There's a little segment here called the Dune Book Report. Where where are we at? Yeah. Hey, if you're listening to this for the first time because you saw Candyman, uh-huh. we're in the middle of watching every Denny Villeneuve movie. We oh, yeah. Dune coming out in October. So join us in that because it's been very fun and like equally <laughs> thrilling to yeah, this movie. Ab- absolutely. I've made a little progress, but not not much. Is he in the desert yet? They have made it to Arrakis. Okay, that's cool. That's cool. Well, keep plugging. Yeah. So up next week, we have Prisoners. Yes. 2013. Denny's English language debut. His English language debut that's coming out. The next time we will be talking about the work of Mr. Jordan Peele is in 47 weeks when Nope comes out in theaters. Yeah. And we should just say briefly here at the end that this is our 50th episode. Oh, whoa. Well, happy, hey, good Happy for 50 us. episodes, Evan. <laughs> Feels okay. wild. That is nuts. Yeah. Dude. Well, does that mean it's been a year? We're coming up on or a year. 52 would be? Well, I guess we did the Oscar watches and the finales and stuff. We sometimes do two Oh, uh, so week. we do. Oh, uh, we ended up doing more. Gotcha. I think November is a year. I'm not sure of the exact date. Yeah. Well, that's crazy. We are rapidly approaching. Congrats. Congrats, Congrats to you. Sweet. Everybody, much love. Stay yes. safe out there. Love you and, guys. Uh, stay frosted. Cinema Bums is a production of DKG Podcast. It is created and produced by Wade Lawrence Holloman and me, Emmett Temple. Wade also edits and mixes this podcast. Our theme music is by Zane Holloman, who you can find on Bandcamp, and our show art is by Autumn Beckner. Our social media is managed by Laura Bennett. If you like what you hear, please tell all your friends and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, the two best ways to spread the word about our work. You can also follow us on Instagram at cinemabums or email us at cinemabumspod at gmail.com. Don't flake on us. We'll be back next week.